Good morning again, everyone. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we began this series called Sex, Gender, and Faith. And so we've been asking the question, what does it mean um, to be male and female? And for the last couple of weeks, we've mostly been talking about sex, uh, the, the biological differences in the way that God created us, male and female, um, in his image, right? And that sex is an essential human trait of who we are. Um, but there's still tons of questions about uh, gender. Um, gender might be connected to biology, but um, it's more about the cultural and social ideas of masculinity and femininity. So today, uh, we're going to begin to explore some of those uh, questions about gender, including um, some of the complex uh, questions around transgender identities. And I can't think of anyone uh, who could better talk about this than Scott Kingry. Um, Scott uh, works with an organization here in Denver called Where Grace Abounds. Um, when I moved here 20 years ago, I first heard about Where Grace Abounds. Uh, I met people that work there, people that um, have been used by this organization and this ministry. And uh, you can go to their website and find out a lot about what they do. But if I could summarize it, I would say they help people pursue wholeness in their gender and sex and sexuality. And so um, Scott does a lot of things for the organization. He does a lot of education. He leads support groups. He helps a lot of people. He loves a lot of people. He shows the love of God to a lot of people. And so um, questions uh, about gender are very near and dear to his heart. So Scott attends a, a local Presbyterian church not far from here. In fact, it's a church that we partner with um, a whole lot in the last couple of years. Many of you know Chuck and Katie Fowler. They are Scott's pastors. And so Chuck and Katie were nice enough to let him come and be with us uh, this morning. So um, we are super, uh, I'm super thankful that you're going to come and speak. So let's give a big welcome to Scott. It's good to be here. I'm missing a congregational meeting today, so it's even better to be here. Um, I just want to introduce Roger and Stephen Jill are on staff, and they just sort of surprised me and showed up. So they, I work with them. Um, yeah, so it's good to be here. Um, I've been listening to uh, the last couple sermons that Norton's been doing, and I just think it's this is a big topic to tackle. Um, I think it's a brave thing to tackle, too, because, like I said, it's a big topic. It's complex. It's nuanced. Uh, it's confusing. The conversation language is always changing. And it can be scary because, uh, because of diverse opinions, you know, the threat of being canceled. I've been kind of following J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter author. She's been in some hot water lately uh, because of some of her viewpoints. Uh, and I just want to kind of give a disclaimer before we jump in. Um, I've shared my story in environments where uh, people are dealing with gender dysphoria, and that's what we're going to unpack today, what that actually is and what that looks like as part of my story. And some people in that environment have decided to not do anything around transition, and other people are in various states of transition. And we all just decide, like, you know, let's honor each of our individual stories, our individual journeys, let God continue to work in all of us uh, in the ways that he does. Um, so it's just my story. It doesn't have to be anybody else's story. It doesn't have to be uh, just sort of my own personal journey. Um, I usually share this snapshot picture uh, just to give you a little, like, a, like I said, a snapshot of gender dysphoria. So... Uh, that little tagline, Houston, we have a problem, 
was from Apollo 13 in 1970. Uh, and I was probably about like six years old at that time. And while the, they were desperately trying to navigate how to get back to the Earth, <laughs> Uh, my family was starting to navigate some big issues around uh, with me and around uh, gender stuff. So, uh, you know, we become aware of gender at about three or four, five years old. That's when we start really, uh, not necessarily gender, but biology, as um, Norton's been talking about. Like, we start noticing, like, I have what dad has, and I don't have what mom has. And, you know, sometimes that's in public, which can be super embarrassing, too. <laughs> when your three or four year old does that. But um, yeah, so it's Christmas 1973, and that's pretty much when this picture was taken. And we have those old home movies that they use in horror films now, but <laughs> they were like our cherished memories. And I remember like watching this and I was like, wow, this is kind of where, this is where this was kind of bubbling up. So it's Christmas. My dad's showing sort of the Santa has left the gifts under the tree and there's these two football uniforms laid out. And then the next scene is my brother and I playing with the football, playing with the toys. And the next scene is we have the football uniforms on and my brother's very excited and I am like horrified. I'm laying there like I have a giant rock on me, like I don't want this on me. Get it off me. I don't want to have this. And um, so there was some mild distress that I was experiencing just by having this on. Um, so the next year, I got a popcorn popper. <laughs> Much, I was so glad too, actually. <laughs> they know that I like popcorn, right? So, um, yeah, so that's what I start joking about. This is when I started getting like small household appliances for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And I really love my parents because they didn't really force me to do anything that I didn't want to do in regards to, um, you know, like uh, what would be stereotypically you would think what a boy would do. Um, so I was really glad that we started with that scripture. Because uh, that scripture that we did that reading with, um, Isaiah 61, has always been a really important, I just love this passage. And I share, I use this passage often when I share my story, because it kind of takes us deeper into my story, not just mine, but all of ours. Um, so I'll just read it. It's just the first verse. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And I also love that Jesus started his ministry with this passage saying, you know, today it's being fulfilled. Um, but we're going to zero in on that word brokenhearted. Um, and I think that's maybe another reason why I'm drawn to this passage, because I just think we're all dealing with a lot of broken hearts. And especially coming out of COVID, um, I don't think... So I still think we're kind of recovering from that. Um, people lost a lot of loved ones. I have a huge list of people who have lost loved ones, um, lost a lot of stuff during that time. Um, so the word brokenhearted, when in the original translation, is two words, uh, leb and shabar. So leb, it says, in the truest sense of the word, it encompasses the sense of who you are as a unique human being. And that might be the heart or your will or yourself. And it's the core part of you that makes you you. 
And then shabar is, uh, translates as broken, and not just meaning cracked or unable to function, but the Hebrew word translates more fully as broken into pieces, like a piece of pottery shattering to the ground. So you know when like, you drop a glass or, <laughs> or in a restaurant, it's just like that sound of shattering glass. It's like you can feel it like in every part of your being. It's like so visceral, right? Um, so that's sort of what we're talking about. And for some of us, I think that shattering can be really vivid. We could probably point to something like an experience or like trauma or something traumatic. Like I can point, I know exactly when that shattering sort of has happened. But for some of us, I think it's a lot more subtle. It's more like gradual, like maybe like small cracks over your soul, you know, and that can just be over time, like things that are just sort of building up like like a shaming experience or some mean words or neglect. Maybe you just feel like I'm just sort of invisible and nobody cares. So I would probably say that my story is probably more like that second uh, experience. Um, and as Norton's been talking, teaching, he said, you know, God created us male and female in his image as something to find meaning and purpose and connection with our creator. But ultimately, he created it just to be men and women for us to enjoy. And I have never really thought about that, like something to enjoy. Um, so for me, right out of the gate, it was something that was really more of a source of pain and confusion, really. Um, and we, when you think about all the people that have access to us as we're growing up, our parents, our siblings, uh, extended family, um, Neighbors, coaches, teachers, just everyone that has access. You know, we kind of walk around with these unspoken questions like, am I valuable? Am I worthy of love? Am I worthy of your time and your attention or your care or your affirmation? And then sometimes that answer is yes. And then sometimes, sometimes that answer is no, like you're not by the way that we get treated. People mirror to us, they're like mirrors that say, who you are and how valuable you are, right? So, um, so my early gender issues caused a lot of issues at home and at school. Um, at home, my poor parents, who were grew up in the fifties, <laughs> which is probably the most conservative. And when you talk about gender roles and stereotypes, like the most narrow, right? Talking like giant, you know, like Miss, Mrs. Cleaver, like wearing pearls while you vacuum, right? <laughs> I thought, when did this woman get up? Like three o'clock in the morning? Oh my gosh, she's wearing pumps too to vacuum. It's amazing. Um, so that's what they're growing up with. And here they have this effeminate little boy. It's the 70s, and they're like, we have no idea what to do. Um, and I had a younger brother who was really more your stereotypical boy very sports-oriented, like every single sport in the entire world. And um, I just think they knew how to engage his life in a way that they just didn't know how to engage mine. I was, I was more sensitive. I was more emotional. I was not a rough-and-tumble kid. I was artistic. They didn't really quite know what to do with that. Um, like I said, it was the 70s, you know. So I just felt like I was kind of... And my dad even had said that before he passed away. He said, I should have done something different with you. And I just didn't. So I was like, wow, I'm not insane. That's how it felt, right? Um, so I really appreciated that 
we had those kind of conversations that were very healing for me. Um, at school, I felt safer just hanging out with the girls. Um, boys were kind of a mystery to me. Like, I always say, like, you get your gender, but you don't really always get the opposite gender. And I was more like, I get these girls, and I don't get, like, these boys. Like, they're spitting. Why are they spitting? <laughs> Do I have to spit? I don't understand. <laughs> so they were just so kind of odd, you know? Like, I just didn't get it. Um, so I was just really disconnected from most of the male presence in my life, like even my own father, my peer group. I was just really detached from um, anything that was male, really, in my life. Um, so I was also, you know, really labeled and bullied at a really early age. I felt really displaced, like I don't really belong to either gender. I'm a mistake. I don't fit, and I just kind of carried that belief around for a long time. A lot of self-hatred, um, low self-worth. Growing up, uh, you know, when puberty started happening, I was just like, ugh, I'm turning into something I really don't want to be. And I just was even disconnected from my own body. I just didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. And um, I just wore this really heavy sweater all the time, even when it was like 100 degrees, because I just was so, like, didn't, just so not comfortable. Um, and growing up, it was like, like I had three options that I just kind of kept facing. Like, I can try to stay young, never grow up, like Peter Pan. Um, or I could just be nothing, because that's how I felt. Like, I don't feel like I fit in either category. Or should I be a woman? Like, these were the questions that kind of just plagued me. And I just kept answering and circling around those questions. Um, so, I just wanted to do a couple definitions about what gender dysphoria is. Um, and before I, we kind of get into the definition, uh, this term is a, it's a psychological term. It's in the DSM-5. And um, I think there's a couple ways that this term is being erased in our current culture. One is just people are like, that's not even a real thing. Like, it doesn't exist. People don't experience that. Uh, and then some people are more like, we don't want anything that has to do with mental health or mental illness attached to uh, my trans identity. So that's kind of offensive. So I think that they're kind of trying to erase this, but it's a real thing, it's a real term. And even in the definition, it says a concept. This is from the American Psychiatric Association. It says a concept, and I was like, a concept? That's why I have that little question mark. Like, it's not a concept, it's an actual diagnosed thing, right? But it's like another way to kind of minimize. So it's a concept designated in the DSM-5 as clinically significant distress or impairment related to a strong desire to be of another gender, which may include desire to change primary and or secondary sex characteristics. Not all transgender or gender diverse people experience dysphoria. So I just want to kind of highlight a couple things out of that definition. One is just the idea of significant distress or impairment. So this incongruence that my body and how I feel are always at war with each other and that distress might be growing and growing and growing. And that's when, you know, there might be some questions about, well, would some sort of transition help that distress? Um, and I usually would try to encourage like reversible things maybe, like pronouns, names, hair, clothing, because um, 
you know, you just never know where you're going to be when you're 25 or 30 or 35 years old, right? So, but I know some people that have transitioned a lot of different ways, and that's, once again, I said that's their story and their journey. Um, but all trans people don't necessarily have dysphoria. Uh, not all dysphoric people would identify as trans either, so there's a real diversity of how people navigate that. Uh, transgender is an umbrella term describing individuals whose gender identity does not align in a traditional sense with the gender they were assigned at birth. And that's also with the American Psychiatric uh, Association. And then trans is a purposefully broad and encompassing term extended beyond transgender to describe people for whom gender identity and or expression vary from their birth sex and or from cultural expectations of them based on their birth sex. The term is understood to have originated in 1996. So rather than a psychological or medical identity, this identity is really more of a public identity or a cultural identity or a political identity. So that's kind of sort of where that fits. Uh, just some symptoms of um, early childhood dysphoria. It's called early onset. So this would be like middle school age. So the DSM-5 defines gender dysphoria in children as a marked incongruence between one's experienced expressed gender and assigned gender, lasting at least six months, as manifested by at least six of the following, one of which must be the very first criteria. Uh, so this distress lasting more than six months and maybe having six of these. I think the, the diagnosis is actually rather rare, really. Um, um, and I would probably say mine was more, I didn't have that mounting distress, so I would say mine was more like gender dysphoric experiences as opposed to a diagnosis, uh, if that makes sense. So here's some of the criteria. is a strong desire to be or an insistence that one is the other gender, a strong preference for cross-dressing as the other gender, a strong preference for cross-gender roles in make-believe play or fantasy play, a strong preference for the toys, games, or activities stereotypically used or engaged by or engaged in by the other gender. A strong preference for the playmates of the other gender. And in boys, the strong rejection of typically masculine toys, games, and activities, and strong avoidance of rough and tumble play. In girls, a strong rejection of typically feminine toys, games, and activities. So I was reading this on a plane, and I was like, I have all eight of these. <laughs> Like, it's official, everybody, on the plane. Um, I almost did that, actually. But So um, a few things about late onset is really more when you're an adolescent or an adult, late onset gender dysphoria. dysphoria. And that would be really more around puberty. Like, like I said, that, that distress, like my body's changing into something that I don't want it to be. So... Um, that's a real typical feature. Like, I just really want to be the other gender. Um, that might be more typical of a, a later uh, gender dysphoria. dysphoria sorry. So some of my experience with that is, um, like I said, it's really more, um, more gender dysphoric experiences, probably. But so we talk about biology, as Norton's been talking about the difference sort of between biology and gender, but I think they really play off a lot of each other. Because uh, I was like really short. 
they used to line people up for picture day by height, and I was always like, me and Denise Soren were always like the first people, right? <laughs> and, but it really did affect me, because here's all these boys that are taller than me, and it was like, sort of like, man, I just feel like a failure still, you know, in my uh, gender. Uh, I had a really slight stature, I was emotionally sensitive, like I said, a greater, I had a, I was very modest, with my body, even at an early age, like this really weird, like my brother and dad would walk around their underwear all the time. Like, I don't know if you had that happened in your house, but like, I never did that. I was like, I need my pajamas on. Thank you very much. Um, and like I said, I was artistic. I wasn't rough and tumble. Um, and that has a lot to do with your temperament that you're born with and personality. And I heard a speaker say, I thought it was so good that you might just be a girl or a boy that has certain preferences, and that's really more about your temperament. It might not have anything to do with gender or gender stereotypes. Or, and I just thought that was really good. Maybe this is just more about your personal personality. So, um, so yeah, that biology really did affect me. And I think a lot of times, like I said, um, we have these bodies thrown in front of us all day long about what is a perfect man or a perfect woman. And if you don't fit those, then... Per, you know, you start to feel like, am I, I don't, do I fit in the world of men and women? Um, as far as gender identity, just sort of how I felt was I was always wishing to be a girl. I always identified with a girl if I was watching like a show. I would always be identifying with like the female person in that show. And I really did have kind of a growing contempt for men as I was getting older. Like I just was like, I don't like men, I don't want to be one. They're kind of jerks. They're kind of awful in a lot of ways. Uh, they just kill people and start wars, and they're just kind of mean, you know? I've worked a lot through that. <laughs> that took a lot of, you know, a lot of therapy over that. Um, but as far as how I expressed my gender, how it came out was, um, so I played the girls' parts when we were playing, like I said in the first service, when we played Gilligan's Island, I was Ginger. Thank you. Because Ginger always got what she wanted all the time. She could make men do all kinds of ridiculous, stupid things, you know? Um, or I was the mom. If we played house, I was like the mom. Uh, dressed in girls' clothes, you know, I, we had a babysitter that my brother and I went to after school, and she had this big playroom, and of course there was a box of dresses and heels, and who was wearing those every day? And then when my parents found out, I got really balled out. I, it was just really shaming and I don't, not real great. Um, I was mistaken for a girl. Like I said, it was the 70s and I had kind of one of those like sort of Beals bowl cut hairdos, you know, that everybody had in the 70s. And um, so people would be like, is this your daughter? Is this your sister? And I could just feel my parents, my family's embarrassment and shame. Like I was a source of shame for them. Um, I was drawn to girls. I was kind of one of those boys, like I love dinosaurs and my Hot Wheels and we had those yellow, orange Hot Wheel tracks and we would like sword fight and slap each other with them. It was awesome. <laughs> but my cousin had like Easy Bake Oven and like that Barbie penthouse, like three floors of elevator. I was like all about that when I went to her house, right? Um, and like I said, just disidentifying with boys. Like I said, they were mysterious creatures that I just did not understand. 
And I felt really different and detached from boys' things and symbols. You know, clothing became, they became symbols for me, like that football uniform. Like, I don't want that. I will never wear a suit because that means something awful and yucky that I don't want. So even the stuff I wore didn't wear. Um, now I think suits are really awesome because they're kind of madmen in the 60s and they're kind of like, just want to drink a martini while you're wearing one. Um, so the mirrors that I was getting, the messages I was receiving was, you're a failure. You're a failure as a boy. Um, a lot of competition. You know, my brother and I were kind of competing for our parents' attention. Uh, lots of shame, lots of labels. And so lots of seasons of grief around my sexuality and my gender. And I feel like I just came out of that through the pandemic of another season of just sort of looking at my life and thinking, man, I've just been so ripped off. <laughs> Sometimes you kind of just feel that way. But really, I just think it's the thing that's really for driven me to a closer relationship with God, with Jesus. So I'm, I'm glad about that. I would do it all again if it meant to bring me to the Lord. Um, so a question that Norton brought up was, what does it look like for a community of faith to care for people with gender dysphoria? And how do we uh, work with families? How do the community care for people? So that would depend, right, on are we talking a small child? Are we talking an adolescent? Are we talking about an adult? Because that looks really different about how people are navigating that. And I would say that you probably wouldn't know a person was struggling with dysphoria because by appearances, unless they're transitioning, some form of transition, you probably wouldn't know. Um, they probably are silent, just suffering kind of silently or maybe just a few people now. Uh, some people are navigating that as single or some people are navigating that in marriages, um, that dysphoria. And like I said, some people choose to not transition and other people decide, maybe I'll do pronouns, hair, name change. I might pursue hormones, I might pursue surgery. Those are really big irreversible things that are kind of scary, I think, and especially in our current culture. Um, so how to care for someone, I wanna share about a person that I met that we'll call Bobby. So I met Bobby through the rescue mission. And Bobby is older and married and has children and grandchildren. Um, Bobby suffers from gender dysphoria and was deciding to transition from male to female to alleviate that distress. And Bobby's a really big person, like six feet, uh, deep voice, large hands. Um, Bobby does not pass as a woman, sadly. Um, when I first met Bobby at our office, Bobby was wearing thigh-high black boots, mini skirt, six feet tall, large hands, deep voice. I was like, hi. You know, so I know that Bobby isn't really representative of most trans people, but if Bobby walked into church, if Bobby walked into this church, I just... What's the answer? Was how would Jesus want us to care for a pers this person? Um, so, my pastor—I just—I forgot to share this at the first service, but my pastor, there was a a person coming to our church that was dressed as a woman, 
a man dressed as a woman. And my pastor, this was decades ago, he was just all upset about it. And I'm like, what's the problem? He's like, I just feel like this person's wearing a mask. And I'm like, yeah, because no one wears a mask on Sunday mornings, like at all. <laughs> We're all just so transparent, right? Yeah. He's like, yeah, that's true. So, But how I was with Bobby was I knew it was going to take time to build trust with this person. Um, that was going to take a long time. Um, and I decided to use the pronouns, the she, her pronouns. That was, that was hard at first just because I, I had to just kind of keep working with that. And to use the name Bobby, which was really, for the most part, you know, pretty neutral. Um, and I would just sort of say that it's okay to go with your own comfortability around that. Some people are like, I just don't, I don't feel comfortable using those pronouns because I feel like I'm being dishonest or for a variety of reasons, and I think that's okay. I just describe Bobby without using any pronouns at all. And really, you're only using pronouns when you're talking about that person, maybe not even to that person. So, um, so I decided to do that. And I just listened, and I had an attitude of curiosity, like, I just want to hear your story. I just want to know you. And that we met once a month for several years, and I just, it was really interesting walking with a person that was just starting to transition. That was a really interesting, uh, informative thing to just journey with this person. Um, I empathized, because Bobby, as you can imagine, was not treated very well. A lot of verbal abuse, no one would sit next to her on the bus. I thought, you know, I know this is pretty outrageous, the way this person is dressed, but do you have to be like a jerk? Like you can't just be kind or just ignore it. You, you know, you have to be like divisive. And I just thought, I just felt really uh, pretty sad when I would hear some of the stories. Um, Bobby felt really displaced. Like, who am I in my family now? Like my grandchildren have two grandmas. I'm not a grandma. So who am I in the family? Um, and I think a lot of trans people feel that displacement a lot of times. Like, I don't know where I sort of fit now. Um, so that was really painful. And I'd, I'd meet Bobby for breakfast at Village Inn, and that was really interesting, you know, to be in an environment where people are just having all sorts of reactions. Um, but Bobby probably won't ever darken the door of a church because she had a lot of bad, really bad experiences. And when I had just a little tiny opportunity to talk about faith, I just apologized. I'm so sorry. That's not God's heart. That's not how he feels. Um, I thought Bobby was very gracious because I did make mistakes, you know, sometimes. And Bobby would always say, nobody has to support my choices or agree with what I'm doing. I just want to be respected as a person. I thought, I think that's really gracious. Um, so take time to build trust. Decide on your comfortability with the pronouns and all that. Listen, empathize. I'm not ashamed to be seen with you. Because I know Jesus would be. I apologized on behalf of the church. And it's okay to make mistakes. Some of the things when you're supporting like a family is 
social support for the family, like you need to be in it for the long haul. It's probably not gonna just clear up overnight. This might be years and every choice that is going on is another hurdle to figure out. Um, so, and then helping the family keep relationships, like are the mom and dad on the same page with what's happening? That can really disrupt, you know, how is extended family kind of dealing with stuff? That's really hard. Um, you know, teens can suffer a lot of rejection or bullying. Parents feel a lot of guilt, I think, for whatever choices they're making. I just think that plagues parents a lot. This is really important, helping coping with strategies for mental health. I just think finding a really good therapist or someone that's not going to rush uh, I think we're in a culture that just rushes people through transition. Um, and we don't have that one-size-fits-all thing for any other issue. It's like, oh, you're experiencing this? Like, okay, transition. And I think even Europe is starting to back down on that for under 18. They're like backing down from, backing up from transitioning. And America's still going. So um, I'm kind of hoping that we will follow with the rest of the world. Uh, but that's what's kind of currently happening. Because uh, I just think that not all, like I, I shared a story this morning of uh, there was a little boy about five or six, was insisting he was a girl. Uh, the parents took him to a therapist and the therapist talked for several months. And what they found out was the little boy, they had the, the family had just had a special needs daughter that was an infant. And the little boy just thought, the only way I'm going to get attention is if I'm a girl. Had nothing to do with dysphoria. It didn't have anything to do with just sort of this perception, but they would have transitioned that kid and not even dealing with that, right? So really important to find. We have a lot of really great local mental health people that are really experts on this that we would recommend. And then just respect for the family. You know, like I said, kindness just goes a long way. So circling back to Isaiah 61, the, my pastor just preached on this like last week. I was like, that's so awesome because I'm going to talk about that same passage. But that good news for the poor, uh, he said that the poor, the word poor is not just people that don't have resources, but poor, marginalized people, people that society just sort of throws away. So that is really good news. It's amazing news. And then back to the Leb Shabar piece, you know, when Jesus says he has come to bind up the brokenhearted, he isn't saying that he's come to just comfort our sadness or put a band-aid on our pain. He literally is going to put us back together to the degree that we can be on this side of heaven. Um, so lots of healing for all of us. Um, that's the good news of that. Um, and I'll just end with, um, I know Norton's going to talk about stereotypes. And I think that that, I, I think as a culture we can't escape them. Like I was watching like this stupid commercial where a husband goes with a truck and a car and then the wife grabs the keys and goes, jumps in the truck. And I'm just like, yeah, because girls don't drive trucks, right? I'm just like, stupid. <laughs> I think most things are just pretty neutral across the board when it comes to what we, our preferences are. And um, I just think I had to really face a lot of the stuff of just like, it's okay just to be yourself, you know, and be you. And... Um, and I just think Jesus really breaks those cultures, those stereotypes down, which I love, because, you know, in Roman culture, it was like, have a lot of sex, kill people, be a warrior, 
even in Jewish culture, be married, have many, many children. And Jesus just broke all of that. You know, and even you referenced last week that he even referenced himself in some feminine ways, like a mother hen and things. So it makes me just love Jesus even more, right? So Norn's going to come up and pray. I'm going to like sit down over here because my foot's asleep. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, help us um, in our brokenness, in our brokenheartedness, um, whether it's a really big shattering or a lot of little cracks. Um, we bring all of ourselves to you, all parts of ourselves to you today. Thank you for um, Scott's story. Thank you for the redemption in his story. Thank you for the good news that you have lived to him and through him. Help us to embrace and receive that good news today. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.